Good morning, New Heights. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And as you're getting there, let me welcome you back to our teaching series in 1 and 2 Timothy. Last week, Lee did an incredible job, didn't he? Calling us to live as the people of God. And he called us, because the Bible calls us to pray and to live into God's mission, because as it says in Genesis 2 verse 4, God wants all men and women to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So that's the lead up to the instructions that Paul is going to give next in this letter. He dives specifically into how men and women need to conduct themselves in the church and specifically in the worship services on the Lord's day. The goal is to create an ideal setting to spread the message of Jesus. That's what we're about. So if you're already there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, let's begin this morning by reading verse 8. Paul writes, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. And that phrase, in every place, Paul uses it four times in his writings, and every, every time he uses it, it's referring to the official assembly of the church, and that's going to be important context for us to see a little bit later. And we also see that Paul is continuing the theme of prayer that he began in, in chapter 2 in verse 1, but here he is speaking to the heart condition of the prayers, those who pray. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to call both men and women to maturity. I'd like everybody to say that word with me this morning. Say maturity. Okay, that's going to be our major application point this morning. How we pray and how we conduct ourselves is critical because it impacts the cause of the gospel. So what Paul is saying here in verse 8 to the men is he's saying, make sure that when you pray... You do it without engaging in controversies and theological disputes. And don't turn your prayers into sermons that jab at people. I'm sure none of us in this room have ever done that, right? You've never prayed with, you know, a person or a group and, and, you know, you're like, okay, they really need some truth here. So you pray, oh God, I'm just so thankful that I've got my doctrine right and that you have mercy on my brothers and sisters who are obviously in error, right? You know, you've, you've never prayed anything like that before, I'm sure. Lifting up holy hands means to pray with a clean heart before God. And, and so our heart, it matters, like I said, when we pray. So anger, disputes, arguments, they make prayer difficult. And you know this is true if you've ever fought with your spouse on your way to church, right? (laughs) Maybe that happened this morning. Maybe you're there this morning. Uh, Jesus even instructed us in Matthew 5 and Matthew 11 to interrupt our prayers if necessary and make peace with others so that our prayers are not hindered. So men, the big application for us in this point is that our church in our world need our prayers, amen? Amen. This this verse, it presupposes that you and I are praying. And, And so the point here of these verses, the application is not if you pray, it's who you are when you pray. And so next, what Paul's going to do is he's going to turn to the women in the church. And as it was for the men, the focus being on who you are, that's going to be the focus in these next verses. It's who you are, ladies. And Paul's first concern is going to be with dress and demeanor. 
And Paul has a lot to say here to the ladies because it's clear from passages later in 1 Timothy, like in chapter 5 and in Paul's second letter to Timothy in chapter 3, that the corrupt teachers in Ephesus were finding their most fruitful hearing among this group that Paul called weak-willed women. And he said they were loaded down with sins and swayed with all kinds of evil desires, and they'd become gossips and busybodies, saying things that they ought not to, and they were threatening the church's gospel witness. So now let's read Paul's instructions to the women in the church, beginning in verses 9 and 10. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So remember, Ephesus is like a cultural hot mess, right? Ephesus is like the Hollywood of its day, and the false goddess Artemis, who was a female deity, her debauched followers saw her as the pinnacle of femininity. And apparently some of the Ephesian women were bringing that culture into the church and they were treating the Sunday morning gatherings like a fashion show. And they were dressing so upscale that it was actually shaming some of the other members, people who couldn't afford such a wardrobe. And so as for dress and modesty and beauty, we need to spend a couple of minutes here because the Bible speaks to it. First, let me say that there is nothing wrong with owning jewelry and dressing up. If you, if you look in the Song of Solomon, Solomon's bride, it says that she wore gold and silver jewelry. And in some cultures today, like African cultures, the women dress in beautiful colors to honor the Lord's day as special. So what, what Paul is really going after here is godly beauty versus cultural selfish beauty. The Ephesian culture was very much a flaunted, if you've got it, kind of culture. And Paul is calling the ladies up to maturity, a maturity that puts the focus on a life that attracts attention to God rather than adorning to attract attention to myself. So as uncomfortable as it might be, these verses should cause us to pause and to ask some questions and ask, why am I dressing the way I dress? Is that a fair question? Say yes. yes. <laughs> What's it for? And does my dress, does it honor God? And does it honor others? And am I humble in it? And by humble, I don't mean like being totally granola, right? Or, or dressing like you lived on the prairie 150 years ago. That's not what I'm talking about. By, by being humble, what I mean is putting Philippians 2, 3 into practice. By considering those around me in the way that I dress. And also in Paul's mind was this idea that the ladies' emphasis in church shouldn't just be on how they look, it should be on who they are. Women who follow Jesus are to be clothed in better things. And this is the heart of verse 10 that speaks of a beauty that flows out of you into a life of good works. Be famous for that. Be known for serving and for good works. And when it comes to good works, 
I don't know about you, but I just have just a whole just number of, of ladies, women of the faith that I so admire. Women in this congregation that I just love dearly as sisters and as spiritual mothers. And maybe you've got some ladies like that in your life. I've been so inspired by the life and faith of women like Elizabeth Elliot and Corey Tenboom. If you don't know Elizabeth's story, you know, her husband Jim, he was martyred as a missionary. Elizabeth went back, forgave those murderers, went back to that tribe to reach them for Jesus. And her writings have just totally impacted how I think about so many things. And Corey Tenboom, another amazing woman of faith. Her family, they hid Jews in World War II. And she was, she was in Auschwitz with her father and her sister, and she forgave her captors. It's just amazing, and her writings have so impacted me. And especially, she's taught me that everything in my life is grace. And I have a saying, I say it all the time, it's from Corey. I say, all is grace. And then I've got two amazing grandmothers who are now with Jesus, but amazing women of God, who literally, these ladies prayed me into the kingdom. I'm eternally grateful for their prayers. And then there's a lady named Pauline Curtis, and she was the daughter of a British evangelist in India. She was raised on the mission field in India, and she's like a spiritual mom to me. And she taught me so much about the importance of the word and the spirit. And she had this saying she would say often, she would say, all word dries up, all spirit blows up, word and spirit grows up. <laughs> Isn't that good? I love that. And it's going to embarrass her, but my wife, Marla, I'm so grateful for her. I can literally say from Proverbs 19:14, a wise and prudent wife is from the Lord. So are you grateful for the women of God and, and faith that have inspired you in your life? Say amen if you are. Mm. All right, got to keep rolling. We've got so much to cover this morning. Paul now moves to the other issue that he was having with women that were usurping the authority in the church and being insubordinate. So let's read verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Is anybody nervous for me right now? <laughs> I mean, I really drew the short straw again, right, on this teaching. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, that's right, Lee. Okay, so we are going to dive into these really challenging, difficult verses, but what I need to do before I get into them is I have to point out some things. With verses like these, I like to say that all Scripture is equally true, but not all Scripture is equally clear. So Paul, in these verses I just read, he just kind of like drops down what seems to be prescriptive instructions with no other supporting text around them. And when you see that in the Bible, a rule of thumb is to understand that no single passage of Scripture that's difficult like this is likely to contain a full explanation for its rationale. So what we need to do is we need to see these verses in a constellation of other verses that shed light on its meaning. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to invite us all to be like the Bereans. In Acts chapter 17, it says that they studied the scriptures to understand what Paul was saying. So 
We need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture, and that's what we're going to do. So I'm not going to try to parse these particular verses alone. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to do some major Bible study this morning. Is that okay? We're going to do it because the rest of this message is going to be like a meat sandwich, <laughs> but we can handle the meat. Amen? I believe that we can. Another thing that we've got to be aware of is that these verses that I read are challenging because our secular culture finds them shocking and archaic and deems them to be repressive towards women. And I actually don't believe that's true. I actually believe the opposite. But I have to acknowledge that there are pockets where individuals and groups have taken these verses and others like them out of context and have used them against women. And if you grew up in a home or a church that did that, I am so sorry. That should not have happened. And I hope that you can experience some healing today. Now, before we talk about what these verses might be saying, I also need to be clear about what they're not saying. These verses are not about the roles of women in society in general. They're not speaking about teaching and having authority in the marketplace or the academy or the public square. They're specific directions that are given to Christian women and Christian men on how to order the church. And I know that I'm building like a ton of context here. You're like, Kevin, just get into it. I'm building a ton of context Uh, And the last thing I want to say before we dive in is that the roles of men and women in the church are what we call second-order issues, or as Lee referred to them last week, open-handed issues. And you might go, Kevin, what's a a second-order issue? Well, a second-order issue is not a first-order issue like Jesus is the resurrected Lord, or that the Bible is the authoritative, inspired Word of God. Now, second-order issues are points of doctrine and church practice where we have different views, and we may disagree on those views, but they are not central to our salvation in Jesus. For example, a second-order issue, Lee talked about them last week, would be like uh, the end times. How do I view the end times? Or am I reformed, or do I believe in free will, or, or issues like these? And what we have to do is we have to hold them in tension. And then we need to be mature by showing mutual respect in the way that we dialogue with one another about them. So like what I teach today on uh, on men's and women's roles in the church, you might totally disagree with me, and that's okay. It's okay. You're not a heretic. (laughs) Please don't label me as one, okay? Okay? (laughs) All right. So now, let's do it. Let's make some sense of the words and meanings in verses 11 and 12. Let's read them again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have exer- to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So there are three main views on what Paul meant here. The first is that some think that Paul is prohibiting women from ever leading or teaching a man in any context or church. And we're going to call that the strictly silent view. The second view is is that others think Paul is only addressing these particular women in Ephesus and that his comments about Adam and Eve that come after verse 12 that we're going to look at don't refer to God-given 
uh, gender roles, but rather they're a comparison of how these women in Ephesus have been deceived by false teachers. And so we're going to use the big fancy word for that view. We're going to call that the egalitarian view. I'll explain what that big word means. Uh, and lastly is the view that Paul is prohibiting women from having leadership authority over the Sunday morning gathering and service and eldership in the congregation, but that women can and should lead and teach everywhere else in the church. And we're going to call that the complementarian view. So whichever one of these views that you take, Paul is clear that the Ephesian women were to come under Timothy's leadership and they were to get a proper theological education. Because Paul writes these words. He says, let a woman learn. Guys, these words were a revolution for women. They were a revolution for women because Paul is being totally countercultural because in that day in the Jewish culture, rabbis, absolutely most of them refused to teach women at all. They said it's better to burn the Torah than to teach a woman. But Jesus changed this. He taught women. And Paul said, let them learn. And this verse and others like it in Ephesians 5, in their original context, they were like a seed that were put into the ground that have br has brought us to this current cultural moment where women are seen to have equal dignity and value alongside of men. And the goal of these women learning was for them to grow so that they could become like the outstanding female ministers that Paul references in other of his letters like Phoebe and Junia and Priscilla. So let's talk about each of these views. As for the strictly silent view, if a woman can't speak in church, then how is she going to communicate? Like pen and paper? Like pantomime things? Okay, I'm being a little snarky here. And, and that's, on, that's on purpose because, you guys, seriously, I, I think that, that the extremes of this strictly silent view are unbiblical and unhealthy. And I know some would push back on me. They would. And they go, they go Kevin, we're just trying to take the, the verses here at face value. And, and I would say, okay, what I would do is also push back. And I would say, let's look at the entire narrative of the Bible. Like I've already said, Jesus taught women. And he commended Mary, it says, who sat at his feet learning. And, and he included women in his, in his ministry inner circle. There were women that supported him financially out of, you know, their thriving Etsy businesses or whatever. You know, they were, they were supporting Jesus. And, and then he, when he first appears after his resurrection, who does he appear to? A woman, Mary Magdalene. And he entrusts her with communicating to the disciples who were hiding out. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on both men and women, and it's a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, verse 29, that says, In those days, I will pour out my Spirit even on servants, men and women alike. And in Acts, we see that, that Philip had four daughters who were prophets. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, it says this, what, what shall we say then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a, a word of instruction or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. 
So women are clearly expected to play a role in the worship services. And teaching is a spiritual gift that is listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, gifts given to both men and women. And then you've got Yodia and Syntyche. They labored side by side with Paul in the gospel. That's Philippians 4.3. And Phoebe, most Bible scholars agree that she was a deacon and had leadership responsibility in the church. And as for teaching... You've got Aquila and Priscilla, who both taught Apollos a fuller understanding of the way of Jesus, Acts 18, 26. And then Colossians 3, 16, written to men and women, it says, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. So teaching one another. And I could go on. At the end of Romans, chapter 16, there's a list of of, of people that are named gifted men and women who labored side by side with Paul, and he specifically calls out eight women by name, and one of them, he says, was like a mother to me personally in the faith. These women, these have an amazing female influence in the church and its mission. And I know, even as I'm talking about these things, that there's a spectrum here in the room. Some people land differently on all three of these views that we're going to look at. Some are a little freer in, in how women are to be involved, you know, here, and some are, 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 you know, more restrictive over here, and there's a sliding scale. But what we need to do is we need to stay out of unhealthy ditches when it comes to all three of these views. Like with the strictly silent view, there are churches where men do everything, and they make all the decisions. And that would be like in a nuclear family, like if the, if the husband goes back into the bedroom and, and he goes in there and he makes all of the decisions for the family and then he comes out and he announces them to his wife and she goes, thank you, I submit to that. I would suggest that that would be a very unhealthy family. And in the same way, we don't want the local church family to look like that, Amen. And while I'm talking about staying out of the ditch of male dominance, I also have to say stay out of the ditch of radical feminism that says men don't matter, everything that men do are evil, and there should be nothing masculine in the world. That's unbiblical, and it gets super unhealthy and can lead to seeing genders as as not mattering at all. And then you've got this gender fluidity that's, that's a part of the problem that we have in our culture, the gender confusion that we're experiencing today. So let's stay out of ditches. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's keep going with this meat sandwich. Let's talk about number two, the egalitarian view of verses 11 and 12. And I'm just going to hit the highlights of egalitarianism and complementarianism just for the sake of time. I hope that's okay. So what is egalitarianism besides an eight-syllable word that you can use to impress your friends? Well, again, I have to say that there are nuances that just abound here, and there are egalitarians in this room who would probably describe uh, their, their position a little bit differently than I'm going to do here. Um, but, but egalitarianism is generally the view that there are no differences in roles between men and women in the home and in the church. And they would stress the equality of genders from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to look at that in a minute. 
Uh, and, and from that, they would, they would generally declare that a person's gender is irrelevant to how he or she serves in the church. And that any concept of male headship or male authority was a result of the fall of man, of sin coming into the world and was not a part of God's original design for humankind. And they would point to Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 28 and 29. They would say that Jesus did away with, with gender distinctions. And they would, they would read this this way. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The application of these verses being that Jesus did away with any distinction uh, between men and women in their roles, and maybe they're different biologically, but not in regards to their roles. In that, they are the same. And so they would look at our verses that we read in 1 Timothy and words like silence and authority and teaching, and they would say those verses are not Paul saying what it looks like he's saying. He's actually saying something different. He's only addressing the rebellious, domineering women in Ephesus and not something that's bound up in creation or God's design. Now, I've studied this view rather extensively, and I have dear friends who hold versions of this view, and I appreciate their emphasis on the truth that both men and women are created with the same dignity and the same value made in the image of God. That's right. And both genders are created to rule and to reign with God, both absolutely critical in fulfilling the cultural mandate of Genesis and the great commission of Jesus. But I do, however, question their view of God-given roles, which we're going to look at and talk about next. And I have trouble with seeing Galatians 3 as having done away with gender distinctions. I believe, and other scholars in church history believe, that Galatians 3 is speaking to spiritual equality that we have in our salvation in Jesus. So again, you might disagree with me, and that's okay. Maybe we can go out for coffee and talk about it, all right? Let's go to the next view, the last major view. You guys are doing great, by the way, with the meat sandwich, okay? Hang, hang with me. Let's talk about the complementarian view. Again, keep in mind that there's a sliding scale of how people apply this, and there are nuances that abound here. So in this view, like the, in the egalitarian view, complementarians hold that God created two sexes of humans made in his image. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So men and women here, equal in essence and dignity and value. And if you lose that, the train comes off the tracks real fast. So made in the image of God. But this view differs in that it believes that God intends men and women to have different yet complementary roles, that's where you get the name, complementary roles and responsibilities in the church and the home. But having different roles does not imply inferiority. It's rather a reflection of the Trinity, where Father, Son, Holy Spirit, divinely equal and unified, 
and at the same time distinct from one another. And complementarians see role distinctions as God's grace to men and women, practicing them for his glory, for their good, and for the thriving of humanity, designed for perfect side-by-side relationship and service. And I really like what complementarian Bible scholar Matthew Henry has to say about Eve being created out of Adam's side. This is really good. He writes, she's not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon, uh, trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. I really like that a lot. Isn't that good? It's really good. Side by side. And, and complementarians, they see different responsibilities in the Garden of Eden. For example, Adam names the animals. And Eve, she's a life giver, responsible for childbearing. And that's a role that Adam does not have. But although that they're, they're distinct from one another, they're dependent upon each other. Distinct and dependent. Adam wasn't given help in the form of a male leadership board, right? God gave him a helper, and, and creation wasn't good until Eve was created, a mirror through which Adam could see himself and a partner to help him to accomplish the creation mandates. A ditch that some complementarians can fall into is having too heavy of an emphasis on distinctions to the point that we don't see one another as allies. We need to see that it's not men are from Mars and women are from Venus, but that the author of Genesis goes to great length to say that men and women, in their primary calling to bring the kingdom of heaven to our world, are the same. We can't do it by ourselves. So the task to Edenize, so to speak, all of creation, to rule over creation so that God's reputation was, was made known throughout the earth, that takes both sexes working side by side, both critical to the mission. Now, complementarians also see divine order throughout all the Bible. And they believe that God assigned roles and responsibilities for marriage and family and, ch- and the church Sunday gatherings. But responsibility, not superiority, being the emphasis. Husbands and church elders walking in a humble, servant-hearted kind of leadership, mirroring Jesus and his bride, the church. And this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 5, that message that I, I preached on earlier this year, where he tells Christian husbands to love their wives as Christ love the church, and to lay down their lives for her. And then he tells wives to respect and follow their husband's leadership like the church follows Christ. And when it comes to God's design for the church, Tim Keller writes on this, and I, and I really like what he says. If you don't know Tim Keller, just think Yoda, okay? Uh, Christian Yoda. And, and what Keller writes is he says, on, on the one hand, Women are clearly partners with men in ministry. Women were ministry leaders. They were active in evangelism, discipleship, education, 
mercy ministry, leading in the house churches, as well as praying and prophesying in public worship. It appears from this that there are no ministry gifts uh, or ministries that are forbidden to women, and yet Paul draws some distinctions, some limits. And, and many scholars that I've studied with this view would point to our verses in 1 Timothy, and they'd also point to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the first part of verse 33 and 34, where Paul writes, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, meaning not just in Ephesus and in Corinth, but as a general practice, general rule, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. And, and the generous complementarian scholars that I have studied would point out, and this is important, they would point out that the keeping silent here does not mean a strict silence, as in no, no role in the church or in the worship service, but rather it means keeping quiet in a sense of not teaching the main Sunday message and demonstrating a submissive spirit by not usurping the authority of the elder or the pastor who is teaching. I guess that was happening. And with this understanding, when 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 talks about learning in quietness and full submission, it means learning with a quiet demeanor and posture. And remember, Paul, in, in this part of his letter, he's talking about men having a peaceful demeanor in prayer. Remember that? Well, here he's talking about a woman's peaceful demeanor in learning. And as for teaching and having authority, in verse 12, the women were to learn from the pastors and elders who had authority in the church and manifested that authority on Sunday mornings through their teaching. And these elders were not just some just guys in off the street. They were vetted, godly, humble, loving their wives, servant-hearted kind of elders, laying down their lives for the, for the flock, for the, for, the, for the church. And Lee's going to talk all about elders next week. So in wrapping up this view... The scholars I've studied conclude that Paul does not forbid women to teach under appropriate conditions and circumstances, but to hold the office and role of elder slash pastor in the life of the church. So that's the meat sandwich on the three views. All right. Now, before I get to how all this plays out here at New Heights in our final application, I'm just going to touch the last difficult verses that I'm assigned this morning. <laughs> Just going to touch them. Verses 13 through 15. Let's read them. It says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Man, the hits just keep rolling, don't they? Okay. Again, there are different views here, and it's hard to be definitive on what's said here. At face value, just reading this, Paul is, is just giving the facts of the order of creation. Now, some interpret that to be pointing to different roles and responsibilities, and, and that could be the case. But, but what we do know is that Eve was deceived by the snake in the very same way that the Ephesian women were deceived by false 
teachers. And it's important to note that Eve sinned because she was deceived, but Adam sinned outright. He rebelled against God. And we know that the, the next verse doesn't mean that women are going to be saved from sin whenever they have children, because that contradicts so much other scripture. That's not the meaning there. And again, with, with these four verses, there, there, I mean, with these verses, there are four views. Uh, and I'm not going to mention all of them because of time, but I'll just mention a couple. Uh, one view is that childbearing here in this verse should be translated as the childbirth. That is that Mary, in giving birth to Jesus, she reverses the role of Eve, and all women and men will be saved through Jesus' birth. And, and so that's one possibility here. Or it could be that if a, if a Christian woman who, by faith in Jesus alone, she continues her life of good works, namely good deeds in marriage and, and in raising her family, and in doing that, she's gonna, it'll keep her from being influenced by the teaching of deceptive teachers. So wherever you land on these, that's, that's fine. You can land wherever you want. Now, as for how our elders at New Heights uh, read these verses and apply them in the life of our church, I would say that we are generous complementarians in our belief and our practice, meaning we believe and teach that all men and women are created in the image of God, but we recognize that there are definitive gender differences and different roles, and this is my personal belief. And our elders generously delegate authority to gifted, qualified leaders in our body, both men and women, to teach in all sorts of mixed gender spaces, ministry spaces. For example, we've got women teaching women in our women's ministry, men teaching men in men's ministry, but we also have men and women teaching in our children's ministry and in our college ministry and in our equip classes. And based on the way that our elders read the scriptures, the authoritative preaching of the word during the Sunday morning gatherings is generally to be done by qualified men. However, gifted and qualified men and women can speak and minister in all mixed gender spaces, including the Sunday morning gathering, under the supervision and the authority of the elders. So that means that apart from the office of elder, and the responsibilities that are unique to it, our sisters and mothers at New Heights are encouraged to actively participate in all areas of leadership and ministry within the church. So ladies, we need you. We need your voices. We need your influence. We need all that you uniquely bring to the kingdom of God because you're daughters of the king, filled with the Holy Spirit and given gifts by the Spirit to advance the kingdom of God and make disciples of all nations. We need you. And I am so grateful for the ladies in our church, all the different ways that they lead and they serve. I could talk about so many, uh, you know, singing, reading scripture, praying, counseling, administrating, one way that I, I personally uh, really appreciate, and you may not know this, but every Tuesday morning we have staff meeting, and during that meeting we have a thing that's called the worship planning meeting. And so we circle up the chairs, and that, that circle is filled with men and women, and we talk about every aspect of what happens here on a Sunday morning, from the announcements 
to the worship, to what we teach. And women like Dawn and Charity and Linda and Angela and Mandy, they give voice and they influence the application of our Sunday morning messages. And I seriously cannot count how many times I've taken some nugget of truth that one of those ladies has shared and, I, and I've preached that in, in my message and used those illustrations. So I'm so thankful. I just want to give a shout out uh, to those ladies and just say thank you. Thank you, faithful sisters. All right. For our final application this morning, I'm going to circle back to the word that I had us all say at the beginning of my message, and it's that word, maturity. This is going to be our final and only application this morning. Because Paul is calling men and women in Ephesus to maturity, and God is calling all of us to maturity today. Because remember, in a church this size, there is a spectrum of ages and also church backgrounds. And and so that means that there's a significant number of men and women, brothers and sisters here, that interpret the scriptures on this topic and other second order issues very differently than you do, and for good reason. And some will find our position and practice on women in ministry far too conservative, and some are going to find what I said far too progressive. But what do we do as people trying to be Bereans if if we disagree on each other's conclusions, what do we do? Do we cancel one another or do we have a conversation? Can we have charity towards those who interpret things differently? Immaturity is when we can't sit in the tension and so we just shut down. Or we get all triggered up and we just start jabbing each other. Can we please not do this? You guys, God has a high calling for new heights. And we need to learn to sit in difficult conversations. We need to learn that because more are coming. How are we going to do this for the world and the culture if we can't do it first here as the family of God? And I mean, if I'm honest, there are times where I get uncomfortable with some of the things that even other staff members at New Heights say around second order issues. I'll get uncomfortable, but I have to remember to love them in the spirit of Jesus and give grace to them and be generous towards them because they're just trying to be faithful in their interpretation of the scriptures. They're just trying to be biblically faithful. And their reading just might not be my reading, and that's okay. And then I need to choose unity with them around the things that we do agree on that really matter. Maturity means that we can and must have robust dialogue around these things, at the same time rallying around those things that really matter, namely that Jesus is Lord and he is our only means of grace. Amen? Amen. That's where we need to rally. So as we prepare to go back into worship this morning, I want to leave you with some reflection questions. And these are questions about who you are because that's where the Holy Spirit through Paul It's where he's going. It's what he's after. Who are you? So I want you to take a minute and just ask yourself these questions before the Lord. The first one is, who am I in prayer? How do I pray? First of all, am I praying? And 
Do I lift up holy hands? Or do I lift up hands of contention? Who am I in prayer? And then who am I in my modesty? Am I honoring to God and others? Who am I in my modesty? And who am I in in good works? Think about your life. Am I known for good works? When people get around me, they just go, wow. They just, he or she, just they just reflect Jesus. Who am I in good works? And who am I in how I learn and follow? Am I willing to be led? Am I willing to be led? And lastly, who am I in how I handle theological disagreements? Am I a hothead or am I gracious? Do I walk in the spirit of Jesus towards my brothers and my sisters? And as you're just sitting with these reflections, let me call up the prayer team. And I want to encourage you this morning to get prayer. This is a church that we just love to pray. It's our culture. It's the culture of the Bible. So come up and get prayer for anything at all uh, this morning. And also, after I pray, I want you to feel free for the rest of this service just to move around. This is a church I love that you can get up out of your seats. You can move around, you can pray for people, minister to one another. Feel free to do that. All right, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for these men and women, and I thank you that you have made us distinct from one another, and yet we are dependent upon one another. And I thank you that we need each other. Lord, don't let us blow past that. And bless this church to be a place where men and women flourish together so that we can be a picture for our world of your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.